Hi, this is Jim Kuzis, talking with you on Radio Free Leader. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Radio Free Leader. I'm your host, David Berkus, best-selling author, speaker, and business school professor. And each week, we're bringing you amazing interviews with outstanding thinkers and incredible doers. All of these interviews are designed to help you lead smarter by sharing insights from social science and practical applications for leadership, innovation, and strategy. Make sure you stay up to date. Make sure you never miss an interview by joining our community. You can sign up at davidberkuscom slash podcast. Click on any of the episodes and there's signups right there or straight at davidberkus.com. You can also, if you're listening on your smartphone and you're in the United States, just text the word radio free to 33444. We'll send you some amazing resources that we can't really share in audio format on the podcast, including the Radio Free Leader Starter Kit. This is a collection of our most popular episodes sent right to your email inbox. So again, to get all of that, just go to davidberkuscom slash podcast or text Radio Free, all one word, to 33444. Now let's get started with this week's interview. So who are you and what do you do? <laughs> David, I am the co-author of The Leadership Challenge and about 30 other books on leadership with Barry Posner, as well as the Dean's Executive Fellow of Leadership at Santa Clara University's Levy School of Business. Okay, Dean's Executive Fellow, that's a newish title since the last time we've had you on the show. And it makes sense since we're here to celebrate a new edition of uh, The Leadership Challenge as well. But yeah, that's so the new developments in your career, I assume. Well, I spent 17 years uh, in university environments uh, of that 1981 to 1990 at Santa Clara University, where I met my co-author, Barry Posner, and I was director of the Executive Development Center there. I was offered a job to go on to be the uh, president of Tom Peters Group Learning Systems, and then after seven, about... 18 years, excuse me, about uh, a dozen years with uh, Tom Peters Company, I went out on my own. And when I went out on my own, I stayed affiliated with Santa Clara University. But uh, in 2000 and about 2004, I transitioned to more of an honorary role. And so that uh, the dean was gracious enough to uh, give me the title of the dean's executive fellow. Uh, and I, I, I love Santa Clara University. I've spent many, many years now uh, working with Barry Posner and other faculty members there. It's a wonderful regional university here in Northern California, serving a lot of Silicon Valley uh, students from major companies uh, in the in the Silicon Valley areas and undergraduate programs nationally. And so they've been very gracious to me, and I'm very grateful for that. Yeah, totally. And and also, I mean, it helps that you've been engaged in one of the longest running studies of what makes for great leadership that uh, I think we've ever heard of. You know, in the my wife works in medicine and in the medical field, there is this thing called the Framingham Heart Study, which studied people, you know, longitudinally for this huge amount. And the closest thing I think we have in the field of leadership is the study that you've been engaged in on on what makes a great leader that's fed into all of these different editions of the Leadership Challenge. 
Well, thank you, David. That's very gracious of you. I appreciate that very much. We we have been working together now for oh, about 36 years studying leadership, using the same operating system, if you will, the same five practices and the leadership practices inventory to measure. So we have about five million people in our database. Uh, we actively can analyze about three million, but usually we choose about a million, million and a half or so on a regular basis to analyze so that we can keep our data up uh, current and make sure that we're offering people the most uh, most contemporary advice on what makes leaders exemplary and the impact that that has on their practices. Well, and to, to give an idea for the folks, if you're listening and, and you probably, I mean, I like to think that most uh, listeners of Radio Free Leader have at least one copy of one of the editions of the Leadership Challenge on their desk somewhere. I'm pretty sure I have the fourth, fifth, and sixth editions uh, somewhere. I'm looking back at my bookshelf as we, uh, as I say that just to make sure I'm accurate. Um, but, uh, which I actually now I'm finding out I can't do because I organized my bookshelf by color so I can't see them all next to each other. But, um, but I think a lot of people aren't aware of, uh, the, the LPI that feeds into it and how you've sort of built this database. So if we can actually, let's, let's go for a brief second all the way back to the beginning on how this study began. Well, we, Barry and I were working together at Santa Clara University, and we had the opportunity uh, to do some uh, sessions together in the executive program. And one of those sessions was the second day of a two-day program on excellent leaders and excellent companies. It was the first day was with Tom Peters when he had and Bob Waterman just had come out with In Search of Excellence about excellent companies. Barry and I had the second day on excellent managers. That's what we were studying at the time. And we didn't have a book and we didn't have the kind of renown that Tom Peters had at the time, but we did have some notions. One of which was that uh, you don't have to be in an excellent company to be an excellent leader. And I think history would tell us that leaders come from conditions that aren't always exemplary and yet change the world or change an organization or change their community. And so we wanted to study what is it that leaders do when they're operating at their best. So in, in this day two of this two-day seminar, Barry and I asked the participants to write a story. We said, we'd like you to tell us about the time when you were at your personal best as a leader. This was the very first time we did this. This was back in early 1983. And we asked people to write these stories. What we discovered when they talked about their stories is that there were more similarities than differences, even though the people came from many different types of organizations. And so that was the aha moment when we li literally took three by five cards on a very large conference table and started to stack them and organize them into categories. We found that there were patterns to the responses. That was the first iteration of the five practices of exemplary leadership. It wasn't five at that time, but then when we create to, to actually determine validity and reliability of that framework, we created an instrument called the Leadership Practices Inventory. And that inventory was then administered to thou, uh, thousands of people to determine whether that framework held up, whether in fact there were five practices or six or seven or however many there might be. And so the five practices 
emerged from stories that people told us and then validated through uh, the assessment tool called the Leadership Practices Inventory. That tool then, after the first edition of the book was published in 1987, uh, began to be used as an assessment tool to help leaders understand the extent to which they were engaging in these practices and then help them to get some uh, uh, feedback on how they could develop themselves as leaders based on the data that they got. Hmm. No, I mean, I think it's fascinating that, and now we've been 30 years and you said 5 million uh, participants and really, I mean, the, the strongest validity I've seen on this framework, it's one thing to sort of do, I mean, as you, as you know, in social science right now, it's one thing to do a study and present this sort of, here's this framework or this finding. And then when people begin to replicate it, uh, they find less than flattering things about it, et cetera. I think it's awesome that in a sense, you're sort of doing your own replication work, if that, if that makes sense, um, or if that fits to prove that this model sort of works time and again. Yes, it's held up over time. We like to say that the context of leadership changes dramatically uh, and has changed dramatically since we first wrote the first edition of Leadership Challenge. But the content of leadership has remained stable, and we don't expect it to change that much in the next 30 or 35 years. Uh, So we continue to refine our understanding. We get a deeper understanding of these five practices. But we've come to refer to it as an operating system, which while you may upgrade it periodically, you don't change it dramatically over all these years. And the LPI has allowed us to then to create a very large database over uh, all these years, which has yielded some very fascinating insights into uh, the impact that leadership has on engagement and profitability, uh, performance in organizations. Yeah, I mean, a whole sort of, it's interesting to me that, you know, I look at your work and the work of Dave Ulrich together, sort of doing a great job proving the role of leadership in organizational health, organizational vitality, uh, or or at, least at the minimum, just survivability. But let's go ahead and use vitality. It sounds like a, a more fascinating word. And, and I love that that model of or this idea that it's sort of the operating system, right? We might keep, we're on what, like Windows 10 now? We might keep updating it and making changes, but the fundamental sort of metaphor that underlies all of it is going to be the same. I I think, I mean, the biggest thing that I noticed in the sixth edition, the differences are really or who you're writing it for, not necessarily, I mean, obviously for leaders, but the type of challenges that they are facing are increasing more and more. You know, five years ago in the fifth edition, we were starting to see what sort of being always interconnected in the the sort of uh, global village that we've become because of the uh, technology revolution. Now we're we're sort of coming to terms with just how uh, steep that challenge is. Um, and that's what I love about it is that it almost it's it's a similar operating system, similar concepts, but written for people facing new challenges because those are what have changed over the last five years. Uh, thank you for that, and that's exactly what we try to do. We we almost one hundred percent of cases change from edition to edition. I think this time around it's about eighty percent because, as you know from your own work, there are some favorite examples that just survive over years and years and years that's great illustrations of exemplary practices but we change the vast majority of stories and the reason we do that is for for exactly what you said we want people to who read it today to understand it's written for this context 
the current context we're working and living in, which is more global, which uh, is more uh, has more women today in leadership than it did before, has more diversity than it did before uh, when we first began. So we're writing to an audience that's younger, that's more diverse, uh, that uh, is is facing some unique challenges. And the stories tell that. The data, again, is updated every edition. So what people see in terms of the impact of leadership is about what's been happening over the last couple of years. It's not something that's 30 years old. So I'm, I'm curious, since we've got, you know, we're updating the data, the framework is staying the same, et cetera. And as we're talking about those sort of new challenges, I'm curious, was there anything that surprised you as you were updating? It either surprised you because people were asking you to speak to this issue or just surprised you when you looked at this new data and you just sort of thought, oh, that's that's different. This is definitely new to this five-year uh, increment of the sixth edition. Well, a couple of things. I'm not sure that surprised is the word, but certainly validated some some things that we hadn't up to this point been able to demonstrate. Uh, for example, if we look at the impact that demographics have on leadership. We found a lot of people talk about how it's, you know, male leaders versus female leaders, uh, people from different cultural backgrounds and how they're different practices. Uh, uh, and and we, we found the demographics, those kind of demographics, and we measure about nine different demographic variables from gender to age to position to, to a functional area, to a country of origin. So we measure nine demographic variables, account for only three-tenths of one percent, that's three-tenths of one percent, of the variance in why people are engaged in their work. In other words, practically zero. And so we we suggest that we focus not on who people are, not their backgrounds, not their gender, not their age, not their function, not the type of organization or the country they come from, but focus on the behavior. That's the most important uh, factor. For example, if you look at the how much practices, leadership practices account for, it's about, in our database, it's about 36.9%. In other people, it's higher. We're f- focusing exclusively on leadership behavior and not on other factors. So a leader's behavior accounts for more of the variance in people's engagement at work and performance at work than any other factor. So that's an important finding for us uh, that, that's, that the data has allowed us uh, to discover and uncover. And that's global. If you look at the global data, we find that the leadership practices, again, explain more of the variance globally, whether it's in uh, Southeastern Asia or it's in the European Union or the Middle East or the United States uh, or Africa. Uh, it, it is the leader practices of a leader that make the most difference. That's just one of the findings. We also find that uh, when direct reports um, see their leader as highly, uh, as very frequently or almost always engaging in exemplary leadership practices. There, 95.8% of them report that they are highly engaged, whereas only 4.2% 
of direct reports report being highly engaged when their leaders only engage in these practices once in a while. That's a 22.8 times difference. So we know that what our data allows us to say with high degree of confidence is that leaders matter. Leaders make a difference. And it's the behavior that matters more than anything else. Okay, so if I may then, there's this old maximum that people uh, people go to work for companies, but they leave work or they quit because of managers. But it sounds like, if I understand the data right, that not only are they engaged at work because of their managers, but they're disengaged because of their managers too. We, we always know that people quit jobs because of, of crappy managers, but it seems like they also stay engaged in them and perform well in them because of excellent managers. Yes, exactly. They're likely to stay longer. Uh, they're likely to, to, to recommend the company to their, uh, their friends. Uh, they're likely to, more likely to feel pride in the organization. Uh, and if you feel those ways, you're going to want to stick around uh, longer. Whereas if you feel just the opposite, uh, you are less likely to stay. Yeah, I mean, one of those points really speaks to me, the idea that they are more likely to recommend this place to their friends or former colleagues, et cetera, to be that sort of referral network. Because, I mean, to me, it really seems like that's a huge key in being a talent magnet, right? Is, is to, like people, it's kind of simple, right? The way to be a great place to work and the way to win the war for talent is to, to be a great place to work. And that means having great leaders that can supervise that work. So I, I wonder, though, too, I mean, one of the things that I see um, ever-changing from when you started this um, you know, this whole work 30 years ago to even now, but even between the 5th and the 6th edition, is this sort of rise of teamwork and self-managed teams and companies that uh, are even experimenting with the idea of a leader-list structure or at least a very manager-list structure, et cetera. What, uh, have you, did you see anything about sort of the role of these practices in a much more team-oriented environment? Well, just as one example, we have a practice called Enable Others to Act, which is, has two components to it. The first is about uh, fostering collaboration, and the second is about uh, strengthening others. So there's a team focus and an individual focus. And as Cora Carmody, who was uh, Senior Vice President uh, of Engineering at Jacobs Engineering, said to us, it's all about fostering collaboration and building spirited teams when you're operating at your best. Uh, and a big component of that is mutual trust and respect. And so collaboration is a key component of leaders performing at their best, fostering collaboration, as opposed to compared to fostering individualistic behaviors or individualistic competition. Uh, so the the success of leaders in organizations is is accounted for a lot of it is accounted for but their ability to build collaborative relationships among direct reports hmm no i think that makes uh that makes i mean it makes a lot of sense to me it's it's interesting to me the one of the things that i've um said often when people ask about, I mean, I, I wrote about it in, in my most recent book under new management with this, there's a whole chapter called fire the managers looking at these leaderless companies. And one of the other things I found besides just sort of the idea of still the role in choosing these people, enabling to act, as you said, there's also this idea that just because there's a 
self-managed team doesn't mean there's not management that's just sort of dispersed. And I kind of saw the same thing with the with the leadership challenge and the five practices that a, a team-based environment almost makes it more important that everybody gets trained in these because it now becomes sort of everybody's business, not just the people who have the title and maybe the cool parking space. Although hopefully they don't still have the cool parking space. That's kind of <laughs> 1980s. Well, you know, there's a difference between being self-managed, self-managed organization and a leader-less organization, meaning no one leads. Uh, that's anarchy. When there's no, no leadership, it's anarchy. Everybody does their own thing. So I'm self-managing myself. But for what purpose? And with whom? And how should I engage with other people? And what do we believe in? And what are our standards of excellence? If I, I, I can't manage myself, if those are unclear to me, I'm just operating on my own. So all leaders, all organizations have to have leaders in the sense that they have to have, uh, or we sh maybe we should say leadership. They have to have a sense of where we're going. They have to inspire a shared vision. People have to, people who, who are clear about the direction in which their organization is headed are more highly engaged than those who are unclear. People who are clear about the philosophy of their the leadership in their organization are much more highly engaged than those who are unclear about it. So this notion that we can just be self-managed and manage on our own without any direction, without any guidelines with, uh, along that pathway, w without any sense of who should I be working with, without any building of relationships and a sense of trust, uh, those organizations will be significantly less effective. That's the role that leaders play. Leaders help to clarify those things. It's not about then telling everybody what to do, but it's giving them a context and being clear about that context in which they'll do it. Yeah, and I suppose the really cool thing is that in these flatter or more sort of team-driven organizations, it makes it easier for those who practice good leadership, even if their leaders are not, to, to take the reins and to actually, uh, you know, it, to use these practices more often and end up influencing the organization even more strongly. Absolutely. And often when we talk, David, about leadership, we often think about people at the top, but the most influential leaders in organizations are the leaders who are closest to us. Yeah, I thought that the, fascin the fascinating part of that was just the power of that direct report for engagement that you were citing earlier. Yeah, it, it, it's very evident that the farther removed someone is from uh, a person in the organization, individual contributor, for example, doing the work uh, of customer service or uh, computer uh, programming or uh, manufacturing or whatever it might be, the financial services, whatever the role might be, the person, the, the person in management in an organization who's most, uh, most removed from that individual has less influence than their immediate, immediate manager. So as the organization gets flatter and flatter, uh, of course, there's less distance between senior and frontline. And so senior may have more influence, but it's still true that the, the most immediate manager or the most immediate supervisor in the organization has more influence. So leadership becomes everyone's business, not just the business of people at the top of an organization. 
Yeah, I totally agree. So we've talked a lot about what's changed, but you actually hinted at something I thought that was really interesting. You know, you said that the majority of the cases uh, and the examples, et cetera, in the book are new because of the new challenges, et cetera. But you said not all. There's always some things that sort of stand the test of time, et cetera. Now I'm really curious. So you've been studying this for over 30 years, six different editions of the Leadership Challenge. Is there a, an example of a leader or a leadership experience that just sort of you're, you're kind of like thinking this one will never go out of style this one stands the test of time etc well one of my all-time favorite stories is of a gentleman who was 51 years old at the time that we that we did this uh, study uh initially the first study and is now in his 80s and his name is don bennett and don was the first amputee to climb mount rainier uh, 14,410 feet on one leg and two crutches. Not all of Don's stories survived to the current edition, but we still continue to, to tell some of his stories uh, 30 plus years later. And, and I think the most important one of those is something we just talked about. When I asked Don, uh, what was the most important lesson you learned from climbing Mount Rainier? He said, you can't do it alone. And that has stuck with me. And I can visualize the interview I did with him and the place I did it uh, with him and his expression on his face when he said that. The sincerity with which he said, you know, it wasn't about me. Yes, I, I'm, I'm known as the first amputee ever to climb this mountain. Uh, but if it weren't for my wife and seven kids, I'd never be alive today. My leg was severed in a boating accident. They saved my life. And they helped me get through this. And if it weren't for my team, I would have never been able to get to the top. And I think that's an underappreciated still today lesson for leaders is that you get into a position of leadership and all of a sudden and people like us and, and you and me and Barry tell leaders, well, you, you need to do this, this, this and this. And we sometimes leave the impression that it's the leader who's the person who's most uh, important. But in fact, what exemplary leaders tell us is just the opposite. It is really about the team. And if I don't have a team of people who are cohesive and working together to, or towards the same vision and, and uh, have, have a shared understanding, uh, have a relationship with, with each other, trust each other. I, uh, I can't succeed. We can't succeed. We'll never achieve, achieve our objective. Hmm. I love it. And I think it's a powerful message. Uh, no, I love it. I absolutely love it. So if you, if you want to uh, dive deeper on that story or see some of the new ones and the new challenges um, that leaders are facing now and how the five practices of, practices of exemplary leadership can help you uh, face to those and rise to the occasion, I encourage you to check out the Leadership Challenge, How to Make Extraordinary Things Happen in Organizations. Again, sixth edition, and yet it is still so true and so powerful. Jim, if it's okay with you, I want to switch a bit from those topics to you and ask you the question. Questions we ask all guests. Absolutely, let's let's do it. So the so the first one. What's the best advice you've ever received? <laughs> I I th uh, uh, it's been such a great pleasure interviewing all the people I've received uh, ha had the pleasure to interview. But but uh, I, I th 
In asking that question, the first thing that pops to my mind is a conversation with John Gardner. John Gardner was the served five different presidents of the United States, was a professor at Stanford University, a mentor of mine, a wonderful, wonderful man, a leadership scholar in his own right, founder of Common Cause. And he said, you know, pity the leader caught between unloving critics and uncritical lovers. And I, I, I laughed when he said that. And, you know, it's just such great advice. When we have people who are sur- surrounding us who say everything you do is wonderful, uh, who are sycophants, we can't grow and develop. On the other hand, if everyone is just saying everything we do is terrible, we're going to shut them out and not listen to them. We need people who are loving critics in our lives, people who are willing to give us honest feedback because they care about us and care about our our abilities to do our job. So I think what we need, as John would say, is more loving critics in our life. Oh, I love that. What's an ideal workday look like for you? Well, typically, David, I I spend the first two hours of my day reading and studying. It's a habit of mine that I started many years ago and uh, I, I just find enriching to start your day learning to me is the best way to start a day uh, before I get into emails before I get into other writing projects I just like to spend some time learning it gets my mind going it gets me it refreshes me and then I spend I usually do some task oriented work because uh, you know, we all need to respond back to people who write it. So I do some emails and then for a couple hours. And then typically when I get to the afternoon, I'm, I'm doing working on some writing projects or if I'm speaking that I'm on the road and that pattern will change a little bit. And I'll, uh, but when I'm working at my desk uh, at, in my office, uh, I start with learning and then I, um, and then I switch to, to getting some of the administrative tasks done. And then I move to writing. And then I like to try to go exercise towards the end of the day. Mm, I like it. What do you? So this, this is actually a perfect segue into the third question. What are you reading right now? Well, uh, right now, uh, one of the books that I have found to be very important is Mastering Civility. Christine Porath's book. I'm just looking behind me because I have stacks of books. I must have probably 20 books on my desk, <laughs> to tell you the truth. Uh, Mastering Civility, a Manifesto for the Workplace, Christine Porath's book. Uh, I've been reading Option B, Sheryl Sandberg and, um, and Adam Grant, new book uh, on on telling the uh, the tragic story of Cheryl's husband's death and then how she recovered the lessons uh, then that may be applicable to to uh, all of us in uh, dealing with grief and loss. And also, I, I love Derek Thompson's The Hitmakers. Hmm. It's, a, it's a book about uh, why s- songs and... Uh, other things become popular and it's a fascinating fascinating interesting read so those are three off the top Hmm. Um, what do you believe that most people disagree with what do I believe that most people disagree with I don't know that most people disagree with this but I can tell you that the most frequently asked question that we get is 
are leaders born or made? And behind that question, I think, is some doubt in people's minds that leadership, in fact, is a set of skills and abilities in some sense that maybe it's a gift that certain people get and others don't. And in fact, we wrote a book called Learning Leadership to try to deal with that particular myth, because uh, it is a myth. The, the data suggests to us that when we actually look at the numbers, the percentage of people who demonstrate no leadership ability whatsoever, and, and this is demonstrate no leadership ability whatsoever, is 0.00013%. 99.99987% of us have some capability to lead. So the issue isn't, can we do it? The issue is, we don't do it frequently enough. And it's really about increasing the frequency with which we engage in certain behaviors. And so I think there is a mythology uh, that the majority of people probably still hold on to, which is that leadership ability must be something innate in some people and other people just don't have it. We don't share that belief. Uh, we think that the majority of people, in fact, are capable of leading better tomorrow than they are today. Hmm, I love it. So that, that makes a great segue into our final question. So you have written 30 plus books on leadership. The title of this show is Radio Free Leader. In your view, what makes someone a leader? Well, in our framework, what makes someone a, leader, someone a leader is what they do. They engage in five practices of exemplary leadership. Mo they model the way. They inspire a shared vision. They challenge the process. They enable others to act, and they encourage the heart. And when you engage more frequently in those behaviors than less frequently, you have higher performing teams, and you have more engaged people at work. I love it. I absolutely love it. So to check more about that out, check out the sixth edition, Hot Off the Presses, The Leadership Challenge, How to Make Extraordinary Things Happen in Organizations. And while you're putting that in your cart, go ahead and throw Learning Leadership in there as well. It's a fantastic book on how to learn to do, uh, to use what Jim was saying. So, you know, get over 35 bucks, get the free shipping on Amazon. Everything will be great. Jim, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Free Leader. Hey, David, thank you. It's been a great pleasure.